Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to help process trauma, spur personal growth, and reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Today, we are joined by the poet James Fujinami Moore. His debut collection of poetry, Indecent Hours, came out on Four-Way Books in 2022. In addition, his work has appeared in Borough Streets 4x2, The Brooklyn Rail, Guest House, The Margins, The Pacifica Literary Review, and Prelude. Thank you so much for joining me today, James. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. So I recently graduated my MFA program, and before leaving, my thesis director, Cyrus Cassells, um, who also has books out on four-way books like you do, he gave me a copy of your book, Indecent Hours. And after reading it, I fell in love with your work. As you know, I reached out to you on Instagram because I, yeah, I just wanted to communicate with the poet. Just because this book is rather new, by the time people are listening to this, it's just you know a few months out or a a year and a few months out. So I'm hoping you could just give us some information on your debut collection, just for people who maybe aren't familiar with it, whether you want to talk about themes or anything else that people might find interesting within it. Thanks so much for saying, Aaron. So my debut collection, Indecent Hours, which is out now from Forward Books, is it's about, I want to say maybe 10, eight to 10 years worth of work. I think a lot of debut collections are this way. They're kind Mm -hmm. of like the product of a long time of writing, of going back on that writing, of throwing away first drafts. I think maybe the oldest poem in the book dates to possibly even before my MFA program or Mm -hmm. a little bit during. Yeah, the experience of publishing it has been really incredible. It's been really uh, cool and weird to see the places that it's ended up, the hands of the people who it's touched mm-hmm. and I'm incredibly grateful that it's, I don't know, had a kind of life outside of me. Uh, it's a very surreal feeling though. Oh, I'm sure I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. My debut collection comes out someday. Then I can also experience that as well. Oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> Are there any like themes or kind of like through lines in your book that someone might find when they're sitting down with it? I think the book tends to be concerned with the question that I am also concerned with as a person. Like, I think all of all, all of the things that we work through in our work are things we're working through in our real lives. Mm-hmm. In the case of the book, the question is, what do you do with violence? Mm. What do you do with the desire to cause it? What do you do in the aftermath of it? How do you reckon with things that are uncomfortable or bizarre or strange within yourself that you're trying to get out. Mm -hmm. It's very much a book about power, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, But yeah, I, I think why do we do the things we do and why do we inflict the harm that we inflict tends to be one of the recurring questions that I think the book comes back to. Yeah, I think I definitely saw that when I was reading through it. And I think that might be even part of what kind of drew me into it, especially for being part of this program. I think about the people we work with in our classrooms here at the Personhood Project and, you know, people incarcerated in a jail and, you know, people find themselves in the carceral system for many reasons. But typically in the unit that I find myself working in most often, it's usually some sort of violent related reason that they are put in that unit. And I do find it, I did want to make that connection for them. Like, cause I know just from knowing them, the writers personally, like they often question, you know, what led them to where they are, what led them to do the things they did. So just that time of sitting down and reflecting on what violence means to us personally, to us culturally, I think seems so fitting for a project like this. Yeah, I think that we live in a very weird culture when it comes to our relationships to violence. Recently, I was watching a video on the history of MMA, and someone pointed out that 
there's that whole i don't know if you remember this that whole moral panic like john mccain tried to make mma outlawed he was like it's too violent it's a blood sport whatever the video which was an incredible video it's called fighting in the age of loneliness Mm. highly recommend it in the video the documentary person pointed out he was just like yeah in retrospect you know the fact that we were bombing seven countries before you got out of bed in the morning made that whole moral panic around like rear naked chokes and consensual violence very strange Mm -hmm. like a very weird idea we live in a culture in which like the biggest superhero franchises settle every argument by punching each other in the face harder like (laughs) it doesn't escape me that people are arrested every day for doing things that you'll see on the news the same kinds of crimes that you applaud in the theaters right like Mm -hmm. these are not inextricable from each other yeah when i was in college i had a teacher who once was just like raise your hand if you've been arrested and i had been so i raised my hand i think i might have been the only person in that classroom and then she said, okay, now raise your hand if you've ever done something for which you could have been arrested. And every single person raised their hand. Like everyone had done something. Even the squeakiest of people had done something. And this is not to excuse, and I think I hope that my work doesn't do this as well, not to excuse or to exculpate people who are violent towards each other. I think that, you know, we are all responsible for the things that we do in our lives but at the same time i think we live in an incredibly strange and confusing world and a lot of the times people will get away with things or just not be in the right circumstance for those things to trigger as crimes whereas you know they might in in another instance yeah i mean i i 100 percent agree with that and i think of that often too like knowing my own life and sure there are several things in my life i haven't been arrested but there's definitely definitely several things in my life i could have been arrested for if i had been in the right place the right time if i was profiled the right way you know like any of these circumstances that i could have just as easily been in the shoes of any one of the people that i've worked with and that definitely never escapes my mind and it definitely is something that motivates me to want to work with this population and help bring voice to them because i feel like in a heartbeat, any of us could change places with them. Like something could happen to where any of us could be in a situation where they are, they could be out in a situation like us. Like it's just those, there's just so much humanity in the world that's, we all share. And it's just like these minor differences that for one reason, this person ends up here and this person ends up here. And so I, I, it never escapes me my, what has left me here and other people not. So yeah, that's definitely something always on my mind. Yeah, I think something that i'm also really interested in in my writing and in the book itself is the idea of how witnessing things changes you like how Mm -hmm. witnessing violence witnessing crime witnessing you know cruelty makes you implicates you within it Mm -hmm. makes you a part of this system And, and implication i think has a sort of bad tonality to it It has a kind of criminal tonality to it i don't mean it in a bad way i do think that there is a sort of justice in it but i also think that it it becomes a very complicated question yeah um and that if you witness a lot of violence it does on a basic level change you i believe Mm -hmm. that yeah undoubtedly the research is behind that 100 percent And then it's kind of like, okay, well, then we also live in a world in which Fox News is in, like, senior care facilities, right? (laughs) Who and what is to blame for these things? Yeah. This is kind of a question I ask a lot of people, but there are a lot of people on here, but I find it so interesting, The one, the variety of answers, and then two, just, you know, everyone's work is slightly different. Like, you know, you're kind of writing about violence, power, witnessing, which, you know, not everyone on this podcast writes about those topics. But I am curious about what makes poetry the medium that you feel is like the best for you to write about these topics? I like poetry because it doesn't have to have an answer, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. I think poetry deals with ambiguity better than almost any other medium. I think it deals with uncertainty better than almost any other medium. 
I think in poetry, you can have things sort of lie next to each other and you don't have to resolve them and you don't have to have an answer. And that doesn't feel irresponsible. It feels like part and parcel of the agreement you have with the writer or with the reader, rather. I think I like poetry because I don't feel pressured. I think also in poetry, you have the ability to see a person, to feel a person's mind working through a problem. You have the ability to feel a person kind of like work through something that isn't resolved. And maybe they get to a resolution, maybe they don't. Living in that kind of unknowing space. Yeah. I like that about poetry. I think that that it gives that to us. I think also that's why it's useful as a meditative practice Mm -hmm. as well, because it's like, I don't have, it's not like an essay in which I have to state the thesis at the very beginning, right? Like it's not a, it's not fiction in which like, you know, in fiction, often it feels a little irresponsible to not know at least kind of what's going to happen, or at least vaguely sort of, you know, then you're kind of like, then you end up with like Game of Thrones season seven, whatever thing, right? Of like, <laughs> you know, oh no, this the, the, the plot has really gone weird because you, you didn't quite know what was in place where. Yeah. Yeah, a poem you can kind of, you can let it work through. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, at least what you're saying, it feels like, poetry is almost closer to real life, like emotion processing, thought processing, because it allows you to more accurately kind of display this ambiguity and uncertainty that we all live through on like a day-to-day basis versus like the novel maybe, or, you know, the short story, the fiction maybe pushes you towards the resolve, pushes you towards like having all of these facts kind of lined out versus the poetry, as you said, you can have two things that are maybe completely juxtaposed right next to each other. But because we live in a world where we have thoughts and we see images that are, are these juxtapositions, like it just makes sense. Like we can see that juxtaposition and apply meaning to the connection between it. Yeah. That's a really interesting thought. I actually really like that. I I hadn't thought of that before. I would maybe twist that statement a little bit to say that like, I think every medium has a thing that it's really good at. Mm, yeah, for sure. I think fiction has something that it like really works on. Like I think fiction is really good at having a sense of resolution or of irresolution, right? Like fiction, like real life is terrible. No one likes real life, <laughs> right? That's why we make art, right? Yeah. And then every time someone's just like, oh, I'm doing like the most realistic thing. I'm like, then it's probably going to be very boring and terrible because real life is is boring and bad mm-hmm. and people don't speak well and they don't like, you know, do emotionally satisfying catharsis arcs or whatever it is that <laughs> you're looking for in your lives. And fiction, but fiction can give you that. Mm-hmm. Can give you character arcs, can give you a shape, can give you resolution, can put a kind of pattern on a patternless meandering world i think poetry's superpower is that juxtaposition Mm -hmm. is kind of the ability to hold weird things together to allow you to kind of live and i think that is part of why it's good at helping you feel like you're in someone's mind because you get to follow someone as they kind of hop from leaf pad to leaf pad they make those sort of associative jumps and the very best poets, I think, do that kind of thing. They lead you down the winding path of their brains. Yeah. Versus, I think, coming to it. And also, I think the very best poets make it make it seem like they're they're just kind of like there hanging out. It's <laughs> just sort of like it's like the best like three AM conversations you have with your friends kind of thing. There's mm-hmm. that like kind of intimacy and like kind of unplannedness and like kind of like, oh, I'm just kind of I'm doing it's grace, right? It's the ability to make something look effortless that actually takes a lot of fucking work. Yeah. Yeah. That is the hard part. <laughs> yeah. And I deeply, deeply admire that in in the poets that I read. You mentioned how poetry has this ability to help one kind of see the jumps from like one lily pad to the next lily pad. And in our preliminary interview, you talked about how poetry can 
be used to help people kind of break through an emotional loops or in emotional loops. And I kind of think that those two topics are kind of related. Like you kind of see this jumping around in the poems and that's kind of like in a way of people working through these emotional loops that you mentioned. I'm hoping you can just kind of talk about how that act of breaking through loops comes out in your writing specifically or in poetry kind of more broadly because i feel like it's related to what you're talking about here the idea of breaking through loops is really one that i think i was thinking about when i was thinking about my really tormented relationship to form like Mm -hmm. i really don't like form formal (laughs) poems particularly yeah but my book has a Sestina in it, among other things. And Sestinas are like the worst fucking form. Uh, <laughs> they're super complicated and super oh, yeah. annoying to put together. But the Sestina itself felt like the right form for the subject of that poem, which was a poem talking about sort of uh, Japanese internment camps, but specifically about kind of how tired I was about talking about Japanese internment camps and how tired I was of the Japanese American community talking about them so often and and in this very specific way and then like feeling very disillusioned by this but then living in a culture that has weirdly in many ways kind of attempted to sweep it under the rug or like Mm. attempted to transform it into like a good thing which was really weird and creepy and the nature of the sestina right is that you know the end the end word of each line you know you have six you have seven stanzas with uh every stanza is like six lines and then the last stanza is three lines um and then the end uh, I'm going to sound like an idiot if I'm wrong about any of this. It's all right. <laughs> and then the end word kind of like starts moving, right? It's like A, B, C, D, E, F. And then I think it's like B, C, D, E, F, A. Yeah. I, if I remember correctly, I might be mucking this up. But the nature of that is that it forces you to return, right? Mm-hmm. All of this is a long way of saying one of the things that poetry can do that's really cool is it forces return. It forces mm-hmm. you to come back to a thing. Mm-hmm. It has a rhythm. It has a kind of music where regardless of what you want to write, if you're being good about the form, the form is going to force you back into it. Mm-hmm. I've seen friends of mine who admire very much do the same thing with uh, guzzles or with pantoums because there's so much repetition and rhyme kind of built into the, into the form itself and into the literary ideas in general i think ironically like one of the things that i think about it's kind of like you know when you're in a when your car's spinning out like don't try and like rest out of it kind of just try and go with it a little bit and then slowly sort of start to peel out of it a little it's it's that sense of if you're stuck in a loop in a poem that's probably that's actually probably really cool there's probably something really interesting that's about to happen Mm-hmm. And leaning into that and really kind of digging in can do some interesting stuff, I think. Yeah, I mean, kind of talking about the the beauty of juxtaposition in poetry and this idea of the return, it makes me think of Jericho Brown's duplexes because that's the beauty of them is like these two almost complete juxtaposed lines right next to each other. And then we get a repeat of the next one. And then by the time we get to the end, we're all the way back at the beginning, but it's a new understanding from where we were. And I agree. There's something about that return, that new understanding that's kind of worked out in poetry that, you know, it seems like a good place to help us break through things or see, you know, what's on the other side in some sort of way. And there's something about poetry that at least for me, it makes it, the powerful tool that I love that makes it kind of like I mentioned earlier, this is not exactly what it does. And everything has its own value, all writing forms. But I love poetry because it feels like I can put down my true brain processing and like how I'm working out things. And it feels like I'm sharing a piece of how my brain is working with people more so than I could another. And I think part of it is like that loop breaking, that reconnecting, that coming back to things and seeing things in a new light that poetry um, has such a strong grasp on one of my friends emily lee luan uh just recently published a book her debut collection uh, return in which she uh explores a lot of forms including some that like loop back on themselves or some that like go down one way and then reverse the other way and yeah i think there is something really incredible about that kind of idea i think too it does feel 
again, very much like life, where sometimes you are coming back to a place, to a situation, a sensation, and you're like, oh, no, I actually know how this goes. <laughs> yeah. I actually remember this part. I'd love to take a moment to transition to the second half of our podcast here. So for the first-time listeners, the Personhood Project is more than just this podcast. It's a connection between the poets that I'm talking with and incarcerated writers at the facilities that we go and teach at. So James shared a poem of his with us, and then we took it into the facility here in Central Texas, and we taught on one of his poems, and then the poets wrote poems inspired by his work, which we'll be sharing uh, James, if you wouldn't mind reading your poem, In El Nino, and then we could get into poems inspired by it. In El Nino, after Christopher Kemp. We froze water bottles and sucked the long fingers of ice out the necks. We brought handheld fans with built-in water sprays and hoped the batteries wouldn't bleed. We wore light-up sneakers. The sneakers split on the asphalt heat their mouths yawning, whispering each to each in dying Morse code. People died in El Nino. We told stories of babies and cars and abuelas without AC and that one kid who fell asleep and burned and burned. We were four in El Nino, he could have been me. There was only one God in El Nino, and it was El Nino, and we sacrificed our virgins and brought sunshades for our cars. We were all virgins before El Nino. We yelled at the weatherman who said the El Nino, his redundant the El Nino, his coffin hand face smiling, promising it'd never be this hot again. As someone living in Texas, this poem really hits home. <laughs> Just the, the idea of endless heat and what it means to try to survive in a condition in a place where we weren't necessarily meant to live in like the resources here are all man-made all the lakes man-made you know all these things that were built for people's survival here are all man-made so just thinking about everything that's happened to survive heat is doesn't doesn't yeah it feels so important for a texas setting like this where i currently am I mean, ironically, I read a I read a news article the other day that said El Nino is coming back this summer. I think yes. So, you know, that's fun for us. I saw that too, and I was like, luckily, I'm out of Texas soon. As soon as I graduate my MFA program, and I'll be excited to be away. But I feel for everyone who is uh, stuck here and can't escape it. And you know, El Nino hits everywhere. It doesn't just hit you know in the hot places. So people all over are going to feel it. So. Hopefully, states, cities are prepared for any signs of failings of infrastructure because of the heat. Before we jump into the poems inspired by your work, I'd love to read the writing prompt that I took into the classroom. And just as a reminder, the writing prompt and poems inspired by James's work are on our website, roughdrafttx.org. Moore uses his poem in El Nino to speak on what it's like to survive the summer heat. Ending with the line, promising it'd never be this hot again, it hints that the poem is also used as a commentary on climate change and unrelenting heat that comes along with it. With this in mind, share what extreme weather conditions mean for you. How do you maintain yourself during bouts of extreme heat or extreme cold? What worries do you have about future extreme weather? Outside of this, I also encourage the writers to share their stories about what it's like to be in a carceral facility during these extreme weather conditions, because I feel like these are stories that are important, especially in Texas settings um, where we see lots of protests and things in jails where people are protesting, you know, lack of air, air conditioning, lack of heat, all of these things. So I encourage them to talk about that as well. So we'll see a little bit of everything mixed in the poems. If you wouldn't mind, would you read the first uh, untitled poem inspired by your work? Absolutely. Untitled One. Whether I can't see or feel, but only hear and smell, we are stuck in a room all day as we wait for that tapping on the windowsill from the sweet-smelling rain. Rain we can only smell through vents in the ceiling. 
I like to close my eyes and pretend I'm home. While thunder rumbles and rain pours, it frees me for a little while and the sun comes back and the clouds roll away. I wait for the rain to come another day. This is such a gentle poem. It's, it feels so soft and light, but in its softness, the undertones of kind of sharing what it's like to be in the facility where they haven't touched rain in so long, like it hasn't been on them, but they get that smell through the vents in the ceiling. And that's like the closest thing they can get to kind of what's happening, like right outside of where they are. So I think that emotional undertone is what really makes this poem stick for me. I like that the eye comes in three times. I think that's really cool. I like that it comes in the beginning, almost precisely in the middle, and then in the very last line. That feels good and right and rhythmic. Um, and as we were talking about sort of ideas of return, I think it also feels satisfying to see that return at the very end. Yeah, totally. And we also... I not necessarily on return, but just thinking about like almost the unexpected. Like typically when we think of rain, people are thinking of, oh, you know, the worst things like rain on your parade, you know, like all these like negative things. But this is like the very end we end on. I wait for the rain to come another day. It's like this welcoming aspect to it because it's just something so familiar, something that just connects them to the natural world from a person who's stuck in a setting where they probably don't get to actually touch the natural world hardly ever. So that just something about that small connection of like that rain coming back again is just so beautiful. I was once, uh, once watching a video of a weatherman who was talking about his job. And one of the things he said was he liked being a weatherman or he was always interested in the weather because it was the one thing that unified everyone, mm -hmm. unified everyone regardless of where they, you know, kind of like what they were doing or what was happening. He was just like, it's really hot. Everyone knows. Yeah. That's one thing we kind of talked about. And we'll get to it as we see the later poems here about how different people experience heat. Like it kind of came up in our conversation when we talked about your poem, like this, the idea of showing the people at the beginning in El Nino is like the people suffering. And then we get to the end and it's a weatherman talking about it, which is natural. That's who we hear about weather from, but just this idea of this person standing on camera in this suit who probably can go home to an air conditioner, drive home in a car with the working air conditioner, like all of these things. And just like the difference between that person and the people that came earlier in your work was something that came up in conversation quite a bit because people experience heat in different ways. So again, we'll see it as we kind of get through the different poems here, but it's interesting thinking about that, how different people experience heat differently. Yeah, I mean, people will vacation to the same kind of weather that they will escape from. <laughs> like, people go to Tahiti to experience 90-degree days and come to L.A. to experience 90-degree days. That's different if you can't leave. Yeah, 100%. Completely different climate. Completely different just, like, where you are and what your mindset is, too, like, going into a setting. Well, the next poem, too, is, like, very much about that, I think. Yeah, would you mind reading it? Yeah, Untitled 2. Burr cold. Not really. Wishful thinking. Try anything to trick my mind to believe it's not hot. So hot. Can't believe. Hard to breathe. The end is near. <laughs> it's a very James Wright ending. It's a very like, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of like intense statement at the end. I really dig. I also really love the like, try anything to trick my mind to believe it's not hot. So hot. Yeah. Like, break so hot. That's like such a good use of white space, of punch, of rhythm. Which again, I think like, is something you can do in a poem. And it kind of lands mm -hmm. maybe different than you could do in maybe a different medium, right? Like, you know. You can follow the brain as it's trying to sort of like wend its way out of this really unpleasant space and then feel it, feel it be snapped back. Yeah. 
I feel like there's a lot of like processing happening in this poem, or at least like for those of you who don't have the poem pulled up in front of you, each line is almost, there's like space between each line. So burr, cold is the first line and then there's space and then we get not really and then there's space and then there's wishful thinking and then space. Then we get three lines together that make a small stanza, try anything to trick my mind to believe it's not hot. And something about that, all of that space just feels like you can see kind of, as we talked about, you can kind of see the process and you can kind of see the, the happening from one place to the next. And, and again, like, I think like that buildup helps us feel that big ending a little more, that last line, the end is near. It's a very panting cadence. It's natural. I mean, as I mentioned to you preliminarily, I got to go into an extra facility this month while I'm working with your poems that I don't typically go into. So a lot of the people, a lot of the people who wrote these poems, these might be some of the first poems they ever wrote. So just like thinking about brand new writers versus people who've been doing it for a while and someone coming out with this poem, this is kind of like natural instinct and like that cadence that's just like a natural instinct. And it just makes me think back to how poetry is this oral tradition and how it started orally. And these people who are writing poetry for the first time to help kind of express things, like you see that oral storytelling come out when they're writing it because it just naturally comes out of them, which is really cool. Yeah, you get a real sense of voice from that one. There's a third untitled poem here. Would you mind reading that one as well? For sure. Untitled three. Here in Hayes County, it's extremely cold during the days. We ask for the air off and the guards tell us no. Sometimes it gets too hot and we lay in bed with our bras and shorts to cool off. Something of note about this, again, for people who don't have it pulled up, which I think is very interesting. And again, I love personal voice and personal stylistic choices when writing poetry is that the words county, cold, and cool, which are the three words that would, in this poem, that you would typically expect to start with C, were all spelled with a K. So county with a K, cold with a K, and cool with a K. And one, I just like the stylistically what that does. Um, again, it's a personal voice and a personal touch on a small aspect of a poem, which I think, you know, it's like almost like a little signature of like, this is this person. But I mean, I can't speak for sure about this person and their intentions, but I also think about, you know, having three Ks in a poem and three words start with Ks and just like the setting someone is in and in a poem about guards, like taking away like any sense of life like small sense of life of like having airflow on a hot day. Like you can't help, but at least for me, I couldn't help but think about the KKK being there as like, you know, like these guards are oppressive in a way that is similar to the KKK and whether their intention there is not like, I can't help but read it that way. And for me, it adds like a really cool element to the poem, especially just thinking about the carceral system and the history of where the carceral system started. Yeah, I think more than that for me too, intentional misspellings are always interesting and cool to me because they're a method of like personalization in language, a method of like also just helping me get inside of a person's brain and the way that they speak and the way that they see things. Like cold with a K feels different. It sounds different in my head than cold with a C does. Mm-hmm. It feels more intrusive. I can't explain why. Mm-hmm. It feels more aggressive. Again, I can't really explain why that is, but it does. And I like that about it. Yeah, I completely agree. Something about the word cold with a K feels colder. It feels more frigid. It feels different than if I saw that word there with just a C. There's something about it that adds a whole new emotional element to the word just by purposefully changing it one little aspect of it again to this poem as a split half and half first half cold first half second half hot Mm -hmm. that's also super cool i also like the sometimes it gets too hot the to as opposed to too which i like because again it's like it yeah sometimes it arrives to hot 
you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like, the place has two locations, cold with a K and hot, and neither of them are particularly pleasant. Exactly, yeah. It's something, it's a small little, like, change of what's expected like you know reading the poem sometimes it gets too hot you would expect the too but that small it gets too hot and just that subtle shift of like making your brain be like oh i see things a lot differently if it was sometimes it gets too hot i, I don't think i would have the same visual in my head as it gets too to hot and mm. and i think like you said it kind of sets up this almost dichotomy where everything is either hot or cold there's no in between that in and it's just that word of T-O that makes me feel like it's either hot or cold, which is cool. Next poem is a cold poem. <laughs> yeah, let's head to the next poem. The poem is called Mountains, so let's see what's happening in the mountains. Mountains. Walking to work in snow above your knees, slipping and sliding on the ice along the way. The snow melts into a lovely little creek or spring. Flowers bloom and blossom, sprinkled into the fields and forests, sitting in the hot summer days in the sprinkler, fighting the sun. Love that last image. Mm-hmm. The sprinkler fighting the sun. The idea of fighting the sun is such a cool idea on its own, but then the add-in of the sprinkler doing the work that's fighting the sun is just... I mean, it, it just... One, it takes me back to childhood and summer and playing in the sprinkler. Yeah, it's very pastoral. Mm -hmm. It's a very lovely pastoral poem. And then at the end, you hit the heat of summer, which is a cool kind of swerve, I think. I guess there's a blend into spring in the middle of it, too. I love it's like the very first line, walking to work. Or sorry, walk into work. No G. So it almost feels like a walking poem. And within this one walk, we get all of the seasons. It's kind of like sharing every aspect of what, you know, one goes through, through, you know, the seasonal change in one small walk, which is such a cool place to put a seasonal change. It just feels, you know, like almost like a time-lapse video of someone walking extremely slow, but like everything changing around them. I was thinking in my brain, it felt like kind of one of those Japanese um, folding uh, folding screen kind of paintings where like you see like the mm-hmm. one figure moving through the season. Mm-hmm. And the, all the images are pleasant until you get to the very end with like everything feels so natural, like yeah. slipping and sliding on ice along the way doesn't even feel harmful. It almost feels like that's just part of life. And then, and it's part of life because that snow is what melts into the creeks and springs. And it's because of those creeks and springs that the flowers are blooming and blossoming and the forests and fields. And, and because those forests and fields are there that the speaker is able to sit somewhere on a hot summer day, like, and have their sprinkler. So it's just cool kind of seeing this transition from like one thing to the next and the necessity of all of it. And while it's, you know, the sun is the kind of the reason for all of it. It's also the thing that (laughs) can make it the hardest to deal with. Yeah. Going to another cold place here. We have a a short poem called Minnesota. It's kind of a fun, playful poem. Would you mind reading that one? Minnesota. It gets so cold. It hurts my face from house to car to store. I race. I pray for weather warm to come. But moved to Texas. I'm not dumb. <laughs> Love the rhythm here. It's been a while since I've I had know. A kind of like poem that rhymes that satisfyingly. Yeah, and the the pentameter here is just like da 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 da. It feels so playful and like a again, it's only four line short little poem, but we get the end rhymes with face, race, and then come and dumb, and it's just. I don't know. I I love the the humor in it. Obviously, the the transition from I'm stuck in this cold place, and then you're like, "Well, I'm not dumb. I'm gonna move to Texas, duh, where it's warm. I'm over this." Yeah. No, I dig it. I mean, yeah, I think it's just super super fun. Hmm. I know in our classrooms, again, like I kind of mentioned, we get a lot of first time writers. So, and I know a lot of first time writers 
feel most comfortable in the rhyme. And I think it's because, you know, that's what we grew up with was rhyming poetry as children and, you know, maybe even read some in like high school, middle school. I like when people come in with this perspective, even though they're like newer writers and they feel comfortable doing it because it just, you know, it reminds me of like what feels so natural for people, like being in an MFA program and being around people who are dedicating so much time to writing, like so many people are trying to force themselves away from any kind of rhyme or anything like that. So it's so nice to see what feels natural for newer writers and then just like makes my brain be like, why can't I just write a fun poem like this and have it feel value for me? Like, why do I feel like I have to write away from it? Because this poem is like, it's doing a lot in four lines with rhyme and like humor. Yeah, it is. I also really like the use of the end of the line. Like, I like the white space. Mm-hmm. I like how weirdly off kilter the poem is. Like, you know, the, the lines kind of careen into the end and don't resolve and that's a really cool thing that happens in my brain like from house to car to store i race i pray is the next bit but it's like you race to i guess to the house to the car to the store but like because because it's been like the sentence structure has been broken that race just kind of careens off into the into the end of that line in a way that i really dig I agree. The enjambment of this poem is so well done. Would you mind reading the next poem, The Change of Weather? Yeah, absolutely. The Change of Weather. While sitting in the back seat, handcuffed and shackled, heading the direction of the start of an almost home, sat in the dog pound, four hours, weather shifting. As I walk in a dorm, White is the color, huge fans blowing, sweating everywhere, baths constantly. This is just the beginning, but it shall pass soon home. Visually, one thing that really stands out to me is the use of dashes in this poem. Uh, I, I love when people kind of experiment with and play with different forms of like dashes or punctuation and things like that. So, again, for people who maybe don't have it up in front of them, you can find uh, what it looks like on roughdrafttx.org. But yeah, there's dashes on the end of so many lines and in the middle of some of these lines. And I really think that kind of forcing that visual pause and forcing us, you know, like to slow down while reading it with that dash is doing a lot for this piece. Yeah, it's got this really good interruptive punctuation. Like it, mm-hmm. it helps, I think, accent the disorientation of the speaker with like the disorientation of the line mm-hmm. yeah it's a really smart punctuation choice i think i also always really like dashes at the end of lines it's kind of like a double break mm-hmm. i think it works really well especially in this poem where where there's so much sort of temporal and also sort of physical geographical shifting that's happening Totally. And I I think of kind of the dash at the end of the line is almost the poet controlling the reader, you know, like they don't have any ability to control how a poet reads it. But if but something as simple as that, like, almost it's like a force slowing down. And I think of, you know, kind of the contents of this poem and the contents of being incarcerated, which is seen within this poem and kind of that loss of control and just that those little dashes on all of these lines is like one little ounce of control and what might be a place where someone isn't feeling control or even looking at the title the change of weather you think about like we don't have any control over the change of weather but you know in this small moment in these small lines this poet has some control yeah i agree yeah i just i really like the way the the shifts are happening i think it does a good job of disorienting in you know, orienting and disorienting at the same time, if that makes sense. No, yeah, totally. I think we get an orientation on the page. But again, as you kind of mentioned earlier, the jumps in scene and time with the dashes kind of add that disorientation a little bit. And again, it just feels like it reflects so much of the moment of this poem, the scene of this poem, the speaker, like how they're seeing the world of this poem with that juxtaposition of organization and disorganization kind of happening at once. Yeah. We have another poem here, Homeless in Snow. Would you mind reading that one for us? For sure. 
Homeless in Snow You lie in one spot buried with blankets, trying not to move. When you awake and come out, it's like a fairy tale with sheets of white snow, as white as a dove, but colder than iced hell. I love the shift of tone that kind of happens in this poem. We get this like, obviously we get homeless in the snow, which kind of sets us up as readers, like emotionally what to expect, like for someone being homeless, trying to survive in the snow. But then by the middle of the poem, we get the speaker calling it a fairy tale or like they're in a fairy tale place, which is like a complete 180 of what is expected. And then like they, they kind of hold us in this fairy tale land for two lines and then completely upended it again by ending it on this line that has just two words, iced hell, which is just so powerful, just having those two words on that line like that. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I, I really like in a poem, uh, just a good descriptive title. I think it always, as writers, there's always the temptation to make your titles like really clever or witty or something. But like a title that just tells you what's happening really frees the poem up to just be whatever it is or whatever it wants to be. And I really like that this title just sets us up really clearly for what's going to come. No, oh, I completely agree. It it completely takes out this need to explain a scene or put us in scene. It Just by having these three words at the beginning as a title, Homeless in Snow, it sets up so much of the world that, you know, if they try to be more clever maybe or try to, you know, have something a little more flowery as a title they would have to go back in and then try to explain some of this information but the directness just gives the information right off the bat and then it allows them to play so much just in the short poem again it's only six lines so it's a short poem so they're to do a lot you kind of need that direct title and it's working so well here yeah absolutely and again i just want to talk about the the kind of shift real quick just because i i love the unexpectedness of this, the, when you wake and come out, it's like, and we almost expect like, you know, to have the negative explanation here, but instead we get the line break fairy tale with sheets of white snow as white as a dove, but colder than line break. And just, I don't know, something about that, that shift of the unexpected, like completely taking us to where we would not expect someone who is kind of in the situation of, being in this horrible place to kind of describe it that way. So it's just kind of, especially having so many shifts in such a short poems, there's so much power in that. So I appreciate all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I re also really like the sounds that come towards the end, snow, dove, cold, the, mm. the sort of the long O that's linking those. And then the iced hell, the E, that, that sort of sharp heart E, I think is doing a lot. No, I totally agree. It's almost like an opposite of sounds too, like the softness of the snow and dove and cold just feel like we get the visual turn and we're also getting like the sonic turn too, the iced in hell, just like something about the way those words sound, especially the ice just sounds like so sharp after we just had these two lines of these soft fairy tale sheets snow dove cold it's just like it everything feels so smooth and then it's just like completely upended by this sonically sharp word yeah absolutely we have a fourth untitled poem here as well would you mind reading that one untitled four sitting in the driver's seat i go 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 looking back reaching to tickle my son's feet he doesn't know mom's poor Stopping at the store down the street, it feels as if we can't go anymore. Mommy gets her son out of the car seat. He's happy, full of joy. Cold AC by the time we hit the door, getting a spray bottle. Pour the water in and drink. Then we can spray, spray, spray on the go. Such a tender moment expressed in this poem. Yeah. I also just really love the the opening of this poem is really good. I think it's really tender. It's got that kind of like reaching back to tickle my son's feet is such a paints such a portrait and is a really good way of like encapsulating what the thing is in a very tr small space. I think. Mm -hmm. I also like thinking about this poem in conversation with your in El Nino poem and how 
part of it is kind of written from maybe not from the perspective, but kind of thinking about um, going through this situation of El Nino as like a child. And I think about this poem here is like maybe before that child can form memories, how like people are still experiencing these extreme weather conditions. You know, this one would almost come first and then your El Nino, once that kid in the back seat's a little older and they can start picturing and thinking about things themselves and just like endlessness of this these extreme weather conditions. And I think that, you know, kind of this one playing in conversation with your poem is a really cool aspect of it. The spray bottle was mm-hmm. was around when I was in 95 or 94 or whenever it was and still around today, I think is a way of cooling yourself down. Exactly. Yeah. Just these, these situations where people don't have AC and they're like that spray bottle, it's a classic. It, it's helping generations of people try to get through and beat the heat. I appreciate the repetition in this one too. I, it feels like it almost is a mother kind of singing a lullaby to the son or daughter in the back seat. A son, it says, yeah, son. We get the go, go, go. And then at the end, we get the spray, spray, spray. And just kind of like this joyful kind of playfulness of a serious subject and how it's almost making it difficult subject accessible to like a younger audience when you kind of think about it, you know, in these almost Dr. Seuss, like go, go, go and spray, spray, spray kind of feelings to the poem. Yeah. I like when something touches on the hard thing lightly. I think that's always sort of a really good and interesting way to come at a difficult subject is to come at it sort of gently and sort of from the side. I, I appreciate that approach in this poem, I think. No, I totally agree. And I think like, you know, both of us, when we describe this poem at the beginning here, we both use the word tender. And I think that if you tried to go about this subject in another way, using the same scene, it could easily be, you know, this harsh critique of things, but taking this approach, you get that tenderness first, and then you kind of get the the subtle critique when you read the things about the, he doesn't know mom's poor, and they're going into this gas station just for AC, just like all of these things that, you know, are subtly inside this tender moment. And it's not so much the other way where it's like a harsh critique that where you have to find the tenderness in it. So I think I really enjoy that approach and how accessible that approach could be for so many people yeah absolutely we have another untitled poem here would you mind reading this one as well untitled five one two three four i'm stuck behind these doors and when night falls i'm inside these walls i toss and turn in my bed i can't sleep so i pray for god to be with me Another day sun is out. I'm still here behind these doors. Again, this is another like slightly visual poem. So each line is slightly more indented than the next where it's almost like you feel this progression forward in the poem, like visually as you're reading it, which is such an, like an interesting form for this. Like it's almost like propelled forward, which I really like. It's rhythmically really interesting to me, too, because it mm-hmm. has this kind of like nursery rhyme, military cant to it in the first four lines, the first mm-hmm. two stanzas. But then I toss and turn in my bed really breaks that that rhythm mm-hmm. um, in a way that I think is really effective. Kind of like it's sort of like you're you're running and then you trip. Yeah, I think it works well for the kind of for the way this is working totally i agree and there's two couplets at the beginning that you're kind of talking about that kind of give it that almost military feel with the counting and the one two three four and the rhymes you can kind of picture men like marching down the road you know that you've seen in like a army movie or something but then it gets interrupted by that line that sits on its own it doesn't have the couplet so it's also like breaking the rhyme scheme breaking form all with this I toss and turn in my bed, which is kind of like this interruptive moment in someone's life as well. Yeah. I also really like the way it's the forgot to be mm-hmm. with me. I think that's it's, it's good. It's a good, clever kind of double word play, but got 
being broken off. Yeah, just visually looking at it, we get, I can't sleep, so I pray, line break, four, space, got, two. So you like, as you're just looking across the page, you would expect that to say, for God, two, but because you have the word forgot split up like that, and it just creates this this really cool moment as a reader to where you're like completely kind of turned on your head trying to be like, Oh wait, I was completely expecting God to be there, but then I got this forgot to be with me. And then it just completely changes things when you see, when you kind of visualize the images of this poem and someone tossing and turning in their bed, not being able to sleep. And then this realization of like, Oh, I need to be with myself. I'm kind of outside of myself, which is such a cool moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get the last stanza. Another day, sun is out. I'm still here behind these doors. And it's kind of like we return to that beginning with these doors being repeated from the beginning. But again, we don't have that kind of military chance, rhyme scheme, one, two, three, four-ness to it. So it almost feels like a renew, like a, we're back at the beginning. But again, as the poem shifts sideways, we're almost at a beginning, but in a different place or like maybe like a mental place or something like that. So it's kind of cool just seeing how the the visuals of the poem interact with how the poem kind of comes back to itself, but f- finds itself in a new place. Yeah, it's got a really good circularity, I think. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about this poem. We have one final poem here called Get Ready to Burn. Would you mind reading that one as well? Yeah. Get ready to burn. This year is going to be a hot summer. Get ready to burn. Every day we at the pool. Every day police lights. No fire trucks. Too many people in the house can cause El Nino. Two bedrooms, nine people, sleep with the freezer door. With the freezer open, the food will be okay. Ice cream saved up only until the last scoop. This is another great poem that uses enjambment to really help propel the images and the movement of the poem. Yeah, it's got that kind of uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, Golden, Ten People at the Golden Spoon, or uh, whatever the poem's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a kind of it's got almost like a swagger in the opening stanza that i really like this year is gonna be a hot summer get ready line break to burn yeah just just thinking of like what that kind of first line is setting up it's almost like yeah the swagger the hypeness of the summer but then you get to the first two words of the next line to burn and it's like oh wait maybe this isn't going to be the kind of summer i was expecting <laughs> yeah and then with this next line every day we at the pool every day line break police lights so it's like f- with each of these enjambed lines we get further and further kind of away from our expectation of what we thought was coming yeah i really dig it i like sort of similar to the other poem too we're kind of descending into night through the poem Mm-hmm. You know, starting out in the day in the pool and then towards the end sort of sleep with the freezer open and the food will be okay. It's also a good line. I really appreciate how so many of the poets in the classroom for this or with this prompt, they kind of like, I want to show you a day in the life of what it was like for us to kind of go through this extreme heat or extreme cold in some cases. And it's like, I want to start you in the daytime and I'm going to work all the way to the night. And, you know, I just want to show every aspect of it. I don't want to leave anything out, even though they're all shorter poems. It's so much imagery in each of them that kind of like expertly walks from one scene to the other without feeling too much like a disjointed collage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to praise the last line as well the lead into it ice cream i'll go even back a little further sleep with the freezer open the food will be okay ice cream saved up line break only until the last scoop 
we get kind of the, all the tension of this poem really exposed in that last line. So the tension of the police, the tension of no fire trucks, the tension of El Nino, the tension of uh, nine people sleeping in two bedrooms. And it kind of bursts with how it ends in this image of only until the last drop. It makes us see how things aren't going to last this way forever. They just can't because everything, there's just too much tension too much heat building up for this to keep going yeah yeah it's got this kind of um starts out seeming almost fun almost swaggery and then and then by the end there's sort of like this this slow spinning disaster that's unfolding mm-hmm. i mean the the title kind of sets us up for it get ready to burn but with the opening line this is this year is going to be a hot summer like at the beginning, I almost don't feel ready for it, even though it tells me, like, get ready to burn. Like, I, I feel like I'm expecting this, like, fun summer where I just get, like, a, a sunburn, and that's, like, the worst thing that's going to happen. But really, that title is setting us up for the burn of real life, the burn of being in these conditions and kind of suffering through it. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you'd like to say kind of last minute here, um, just kind of encouragement of writing or kind of just like overall, like what you kind of saw out of all these poems, just anything before we sign out? I think I really appreciate how straightforward the poems are, you know, that they're working in. I, I think as poets, you know, there's always the temptation to make things obscure or hide them or something. But I think sometimes talking directly about things can be more powerful and more skillful. Um, and I really appreciate that in these poems. Yeah, I can't agree more. Thank you so much for joining me today, James. I really appreciate it. For sure. Absolutely. I want to thank James Fujinami more for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us, as well as the San Marcos Arts Commission for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Alex Lyon, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time.